All right. Welcome to Refuge Fellowship. If everyone's got your Bibles, you're going to need your Bibles, so please grab them. I know if you got your phones, that's okay. Um, great news for you is we have some Bibles coming in a few weeks, and so then I'm going to go ahead and give you a Bible instead. But they're not here for a few more weeks, so we're excited to have that. And so please open your Bibles up. We're going to be in John chapter 2. So I'm really enjoying this study. Most of you have been here with us, and we've been studying through the Gospels. We are going through the Gospels chronologically, and we're learning about Jesus through the study of his word, our Bibles. We started in John 1.1 many months ago when we first arrived here, about four or five months ago. Maybe it was five months ago. I'm not even sure now. And we started with the teaching that Jesus is God, and then John 1.1 further defined who Jesus is. And we continued just through the Gospels chronologically, and we learned about John the Baptist. Then we studied the birth of Jesus. We even studied Jesus' early childhood, including all the prophecies that were fulfilled at that time. In all the four Gospels, we studied how John the Baptist prepared for Jesus and how then Jesus was baptized. So who remembers what happened when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days? Remembers that sermon. Remember, he rebuked Satan through the word of God. I just love that message. And then soon after that, we're just kind of going right through all the studies that we've done. Jesus called the first disciples. And they were called, and then they started to follow Jesus. So after these five disciples right now begin to follow Jesus, they all went to a wedding. We're all familiar with the wedding, right? When Jesus performed his first miracle turning water into wine. That was last week's message. And I highlighted the fact that Mary began this with asking Jesus, help. Comes to Jesus, help, fix this problem. Because Mary, she didn't want the couple or she didn't want the family to be shamed for running out of wine. Now, we see Mary's last recorded words here. What did she say? Do whatever he tells you. And Mary was speaking at this time to these servants, instructing them to obey Jesus and do whatever he tells you to do. And we know this story. The servants were obedient, right? They filled the jars full of water. Then Jesus turned water into wine. And then many came to believe. The disciples came to believe their faith was increased. My personal application from last week was each of us will one day stand before the Lord and give account. In fact, I want to look at Hebrews. Real quick, turn to your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, probably got it on the screen here. Verse 13, hopefully. Nothing in creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. I love Jesus. I'm just so amazed just each and every day. And I reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for me. And I know one day... I'm going to meet Jesus. I'm going to stand before him. And I am so excited to stand before him and him to look upon me and me to look upon him and him to say to me, you've been faithful for all I have blessed you with. You've used it to glorify him. Because last week was the main message is we we can look at Mary's message. And when she said, do whatever Jesus tells you, so I will not be ashamed to give account when I meet my Lord Jesus. That was last week's message. A lot of people kind of mistook that a little bit, you know, about being ashamed. Like, we're going to meet the Lord Jesus. That's not a salvation question. 
we are saved, but we are going to give account for our lives and all the blessings that God has given us to use for his kingdom. So now we're going to pick up this week, continuing on. Some, a little bit of time has passed after the wedding. And we've seen in verse, if you turn back in verse 12, you can see what has taken place, that they went to Capernaum and his fam- with his family and with his disciples. So we're going to resume this story now in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Let's read it. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus and the disciples now have a, go, went to attend Passover. And I want to take a few minutes to look at what is Passover. What does that mean? And as I studied this and I looked at this and I've studied a lot in the past, how do you simply, shortly kind of just explain what Passover is? Now, I was really kind of struggling, like, how do I just explain it really simply? Because there's so much there, and that's not even what the message is really about today. So I want to read a commentary to you. It's, it's gotquestions.org. If any of you have never used that, it's a great commentary. And I want to read it because they just did a great job at really simply explaining what Passover celebration is. So I'm going to read that to you. The celebration of Passover is in remembrance of the time in Israel's history when the Lord moved through Egypt, destroying the firstborn of all people and animals. We can look to Exodus 11 and 12 for that. This was the final of the ten plagues God visited upon Egypt, designed to force Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave their country and leave um, slavery. The Israelites were commanded by God to take the blood of a male lamb, one without blemish, and smear it on the doorpost of their houses. When the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over that house. This is the foreshadowing of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, where the blood would cover the sins of those who believe in him, causing God's judgment to pass over them. Ever since that night, Jews have celebrated the Passover in remembrance of God's grace to them. I really like that definition they gave there. Now, as we have a little bit of a definition, I want to turn to the scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses. In honor of the Lord your God, celebrate the Passover each year in early spring. In the month of Abib, for that was the month which the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Your Passover sacrifice may be taken either from the flock or the herd, and it must be sacrificed to the Lord your God at the designated place of worship, the place he chooses for his name to be honored. Eat it with bread made without yeast. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast. And when you escape from Egypt in such a hurry, eat this bread, the bread of suffering, so that as long as you live, you will remember the day you departed from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in any house throughout your land for those seven days. And when you sacrifice the Passover lamb on the evening of the first day, do not let any of the meat remain until the next morning. You may sacrifice the Passover. You may not sacrifice the Passover in just any of the towns that your Lord has given you. You must offer it only at the designated place of worship, the place the Lord, your God, chooses for his name to be honored. Sacrifice it there in the evening as the sun goes down on the anniversary of the exodus from Egypt. Roast the lamb and eat it in the place that your Lord, your God chooses. Then you may go back to the tents 
the next morning. For the next six days you may not eat any bread made without yeast. On the seventh day, proclaim another holy day in honor of the Lord your God. And no work may be done on that day. I wanted to read through all that, and I just was amazed as I started reading it, just to give an explanation of what Jesus was doing. I mean, we really got to have a little bit of an understanding of what he was doing there. And as I read this, so many things started already just speaking to me. The first verse gives me a picture. Let's turn back to that first verse and look at it. First thing I see is that these Jewish people, the Israelites, they were commanded to observe this festival. Why? Why did God command them, or how did he command them? Through the scripture, right? I mean, it says his law. But just as we all read our Bibles and we walk through life as Christian, there's a lot of commands we're to follow in the Bible. There's a lot of things that he gives us. You know, we have our guidebook here. What is the heart behind us being obedient to God, obedient to the scripture? Just as what was the heart of the Israelites being obedient to observe Passover? What was the heart behind that? Look at verse 1. I think it says it in the second word, in honor. In honor. Honor of who? We know it's God. But it's more than that. Look again. It's God to them, but it's their Lord. I think it's so important. So it's in honor of the Lord, our God. I love that. I just love that because it's so much different than just saying, I obey God's word. No, I want to honor God. But I don't just want to honor God. I want to honor God, who is my Lord. There's such a big difference there. The next part of this I really, really like. It says to celebrate. It doesn't just say obey. It says to celebrate. Um, I looked it up in the Hebrew. I probably pronounce it way wrong. Samar. And some of your Bibles maybe say observe. It depends on what version you got. Mine says celebrate. Some says observe. Depends on what Bible you have. So I looked it up in the Strong's because I thought it was important to see how these people were to celebrate or observe the Passover. And it says to observe, to celebrate, to keep a Sabbath or a covenant or commands. To It's a perform. It was an action. So we see in this passage that the Jewish people or the Israelites were to observe, celebrate, and honor God for what he had done for them, for freeing them, freeing them from their enslavement that they were in. These Israelites had been freed from this physical slavery from Egypt. And we as believers today, everyone today who has placed our faith in Jesus, have been freed from our sin, freed from the grip of sin and you know, I, I just see so much correlation here. You know, most Christians today, and we're not required to, we don't celebrate Passover. Um, I, there are some Messianic Jews, and maybe there's some people that do, but we're not required to, and we don't. But what my question is, is we see these passages here, is they, in the honor of your Lord God, celebrate Passover. Today, how do we each celebrate what Jesus has done for us? Maybe it's not Passover, but how do we celebrate? What's that look like in our lives? Looking at the passages in Jesus' time, we see that God's children were called to this festival, Passover festival, once a year. They would go to the temple. They would offer their sacrifices. Um, they gave up yeast. They had some uh, the other sacrifices. But they would celebrate and set time aside to celebrate how God had freed them. Today, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has changed how we worship, Right? I, I, we don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. We're not required to go. There isn't one right now. Uh, we don't offer animal sacrifices. 
right? He's changed that. Jesus has changed that. But the fact is today, through Jesus Christ now, we are the church, right? We are the temple of God today. Quite different from what it was in this time. You're like, what is he talking about? Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Flip way over in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. How does this verse now apply to us today? In a world that we are in right here today, in Chiang Mai, where professing Christians would say that you are to show love to the lost by not attending church. That was told to me yesterday. And I get about one of them a day because we're meeting. I don't normally quote as many commentaries, but this week I'm kind of heavy on commentary quotes just because I couldn't do better than they said it and I didn't want to plagiarize them. <laughs> so I'm going to give you another quote because it's a commentary on this verse. It says, the Greek word translated as you in verses 16 and 17 is plural. So when Paul said, you are the temple of God, he was referring to the believers as a group, the local church. The temple in Jerusalem was a sacred building dedicated to the worship of God. According to Paul, the church was equivalent to the temple. God's presence, God's presence, sorry, resided in the church, and the church was to maintain holiness. I want you to look at the verse again. We're going to read it again. This is so important in our times. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys the temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. As we continue in the passages today, I'm going to go back to that question. I always got a question. How do we celebrate what Jesus has done for us today? Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this. So let's turn back to John. Chapter 2, and we're going to continue there now. Let's look at verse 14. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. We had to spend a lot of time on Passover, right? Because this is, now we're going to get going. So Jesus, he came to Jerusalem. He came to the temple. He came, Jesus came to worship God, to be obedient, to celebrate Passover. This isn't the first time, is it, right? This isn't the first time Jesus has came to Jerusalem. is isn't the first time I'm sure he's came to Passover. So this is not the first time that Jesus has seen the market that was set up. What about that? Jesus has seen this before. He's seen these merchants selling the cows before. He's seen the money exchangers before for how many years? So there raises a question. Why now? I don't know. Think about that. So here, all of us live in Asia. A lot of us are from Asia. We've walked through many markets, all of us. A lot of us have traveled around the world, and we have a great picture of what this may have looked like even, or what markets look like today. Most of us has even set, seen markets set up in entryways on the way or in the, you know, to a pagan temple. They sell birds, they sell fruit, they sell flowers, incense, um, 
and it, other sacrifices, knickknacks, whatever you want, right? These little markets. They're set up on, in the front of every pagan temple. You can go there, you can buy these sacrifices or buy these things. And it reminded me of a story that happened to my family. When we were first new in Myanmar, a local was showing us around, and one of the things they really like to do is they like to take you to all these temples and show you these. And I wasn't really familiar with them, so it's kind of neat to go see all these. So the family and I, we went with this person. They were showing us all these temples and showing all these different things. And we're traveling all around, and it's getting later in the day, and the kids and Vicky were getting a little bit hungry. And so Vicky, you know, is a great mom. She's going to take care of the family, and she goes up to this uh, stand it was fruit stand to get some fruit for the family to eat. Vicky was informed that this fruit was not for sale for eating. This fruit was for sale for offerings at the temple. This market lady was not very happy with my wife that she wanted to buy to eat the fruit. So that was unknown to us that there was special and fruit that cost much more than the same fruit you could buy down the street at the market, but it's only meant for the offerings. Now, interesting, I share that story. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Very much similar kind of stories. People are still trying to upsell these offerings that people are trying to offer, even at these pagan temples, and claim the offering that maybe they brought from their home isn't good enough, so you need to purchase my bananas, because they're special, and they cost double, so you can make this offering at this pagan temple. Otherwise, your offering might not be accepted, right? I mean, that's what they're going to try to sell you on. And look, looking at these passages, looking back, we also got to remember there was a, not just a sacrifice, but there was also a tax, a temple tax that you had to pay a Passover. I think a lot of you are kind of familiar with that. So there was a monetary offering that had to be presented to the priest. And it had to be in Jewish currency because there's no way they're taking a Roman coin inside the Jewish temple. And, you know, again, they're under Roman rule, so all the people's monies that they had all around were either Roman or wherever they were from. But So they had to come and they had to exchange their money so they could pay their temple tax and be obedient and celebrate Passover. So they'd come up to these money exchangers. And I'll tell you, these money exchangers, their intentions were not to help people worship God. They weren't there for that. I mean, that would have been nice, right? Provide a service. You know, that was like legitimate, like, hey, I know you come from afar, you don't have the right money. No, that's not what they were there. They were not given a fair price on the exchange. They were dishonest. They only had one motive, to take advantage of the people to rip them off that were coming to worship God. So how many of you have dealt with this? Rotten money exchangers. I bet you a lot of you have. I have dealt with so many. Now, Myanmar is one of the worst ones. Thailand isn't near as bad. I would, in Myanmar, I would go with my perfect $100 bill. Though Those that have traveled to Myanmar will understand this. Perfect $100 bill, so I thought. And I would hand it to the person. They would look at it. And I don't know how. They would find something wrong with that $100 bill. I, I don't care. They always find something wrong with it. If there's a corner was torn, or there's maybe some little mark on it, or maybe someone had folded it. And they would say, oh, I have to give you a discounted rate because your money's not perfect. This happens every time you try to exchange money in Myanmar. And, you know, they, then they, they finally, you're like, what are you going to do? You don't got no choice. I mean, you don't got no money. You need to exchange your money. So you just take the hit, right? They make like 15% or 20%, and they're totally ripping you off. And then they, they come to Thailand and get full, full exchange rate for it. 
Um, so they give you this Myanmar jet, right? Their money. And those of you know, this is the nastiest money on the planet. You know, it is, is, and it's useless anywhere else outside of Myanmar to top it off. This is, it's torn up, it's worn out, it's covered in beetle nut spit, and it stinks horrifically. So this is this money exchange, and that's pretty much how it works there. So, you know, I read this, and I, I'm telling a story today, but this was happening in Jesus' time at these merchants for these people that are coming to worship. It's the same thing. I mean, just same thing. People are people, right? I mean, people are people. So we see here also there was a merchant selling different animals that were required for sacrifice. We look back in the verses. And again, these people, these merchants, they were there for one reason, to make money. They weren't there to help the people come before the Lord and worship God. That's not why they were there. Um, there's a lot of traditions and assumptions. I'm going to give you... Oh, they, you, know, you don't know how much of this is exactly true, but I think most of it probably is true. Uh, they would say that these sellers would take these, um, tell these people that their sacrifices they brought, their animals, they say, oh, that's not going to be acceptable, right? That's not good enough. If something's wrong with it. But I have right here the perfect sacrifice for you. I'm going to charge you like three times what it's worth. And But I'm going to do you a huge favor today, special today for you, because I know you travel so far. I'll buy your animal that wouldn't be good enough for a sacrifice and give you a discount, right? So I only charge you double amount if you give me your other animal. And then they take that other animal and they put it in the back and sell it to the next guy the next day uh, as a approved sacrifice. Now, I don't know how much of this is true. Again, this is people kind of joke about this, but whatever was taking place, it was very dishonest and they were charging way inflated rates and they were just taking advantage of people. And Jesus knew this. This is what was happening. It's also tradition. Again, we don't know, but I bet you it's true that the priests that were accepting the offering of the animals, they had connections in the market and they were just, they were working a whole scam. And I, you know, I do believe this is probably true. We don't know this for sure, but I know humans and uh, this sounds like something we would do. Um, so the whole thing was a scam and it wasn't supposed to be. So again, I, I thought about this. I always try to come up with an example in the church today. Like, how do you relate this to today? Uh, praise the Lord. I couldn't come up with a great example of someone was doing that bad in the church today. I did think maybe some of the heretics that teach the prosperity gospel, but yeah, little similarities, but not really. But anyways, so before we read Jesus's reaction to these things that he has witnessed, I thought of this. Again, remember, Jesus has been to so many Passovers. I asked you, he's been to a bunch of Passovers before. And he's seen this taking place before. Why is he going to do what he do, does this time? What has changed this year that Jesus is going to go in and cause some problems? Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus made a whip from some of the ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. Then, going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So Jesus reacts very strongly to what he's experienced coming into this market. But again, something's changed. Why such the reaction this time? Jesus, he chose to visit this place. He rebukes the people. He cast out the sin that was in the house of God. But as we read this, I think one thing I noticed is this was not an immediate reaction when Jesus just walked in. He didn't just walk in the door and start doing this. It says that he took time and he made a whip. 
I find that interesting. He wasn't surprised when Jesus showed up. He knew what he was walking into. And, you know, is he, you think about making this whip. Um, I don't think it was some big whip like we think Indiana Jones. Well, I don't think it was anything like that. I mean, we don't know what it was. I'm sure it was something short and just something to kind of get the attention and get the attention of the animals to get out of there. But whatever the case was, he did take some time to weave this together and make it. The scripture says it. So he went around flipping tables. He went around spilling the money everywhere. And then Jesus instructs all these people, remove these things that were corrupting his father's house. So Jesus has taken a stand. He is cleansing the house of God. He is casting out these sinful things that were in the temple. So what about today? I have to go back today. Is there sin in the church today? Look around the world, though. When is it time to call it out and remove it from the church? We all know the condition of the church today. I don't need to preach on that, I don't think. I think we know the situation going on. But when... Now, let's take it personal, right? We can all talk about the church, right? It's easy to... But what about us? When do we examine our own lives? As because together, we are the church. We are the temple. This is where God resides, right? When we are the temple of God, when do we examine ourselves? I believe the time's today. I really believe that right now. We each need to take a deep, deep look at our lives and the church... And cast out, I love that word they use, I can't remember the, in the um, Greek, but he cast out all the things out of there that would not be pleasing to the Lord. So we need to look at our lives and the church and cast out all the sinful things that are infecting our church and our lives and our families. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with a never-ending fire. When Jesus comes, I want his house, his house, to be honoring to him. Let's read about the disciples. Let's see what happens here. Back in John, verse 17. Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from Scripture. Passion. For God's house will consume me. I don't give the disciples a lot of credit usually. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I, I don't think this was just on their own. I think the Holy Spirit had a big part of this, just as he does for me. I think the Holy Spirit is w- working through Scripture as he always does. And I believe he revealed this Scripture to the disciples. Again, it's not, I, I don't know how it worked exactly, but I'm sure that's what happened. He brought this Scripture to their mind, which is Psalm 69, 9. And I'm sure as the disciples are watching this happen, they were very shaken, like not understanding what's going on. And they're watching, and they're just confused. But then it, the Holy Spirit reveals this verse to them. And they have a glimpse of understanding about this passion that Jesus has. And we always say it, Jesus is our example. And I've been asking you, how do you celebrate what Jesus has done for you? I'm adding to the question. It's a two-part question now. Do you have a passion for the church that is consuming? Do you have a passion for the church that is consuming? Will you celebrate what Jesus Christ has done with you with everything you are and everything you do that's consuming? Jesus was so passionate that he was mocked. He was looked down upon for his desire to please God and the Lord. Let's see. 
Let's see what the Jewish leaders have to say about this, what Jesus did. Let's look at verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you this authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. So Jesus' question, explain yourself. What have you done? The leaders also insisted that Jesus prove his authority by a sign or a miracle. They were expecting, you know, if Jesus was this prophet, as they maybe would think, they would have been expecting him to perform a miracle like Moses, like parting the sea or something else. You know, people today, they ask the same question. Again, nothing much has changed. By what right do you have to call me out or rebuke me for my sinful behavior? By what right do you have to call me out or rebuke me for my sinful behavior? Nothing's changed. Who do you think you are? Now, I've had a lot of interactions the last few weeks. And I'll tell you, I always, 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 Chris and I were talking about this. We do our absolute best to pray in, in love. First and foremost, in love. But we point them first and foremost always back to God's word and what scripture says. Showing them through God's scripture that it's the scripture. It's God rebuking them. It's his authority, not mine. What is your response to someone that is sinning? Do you call it out? Let's see. Let's look at Jesus' response here in verses 19 through 20. All right, Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. So Jesus responds, they're all confused. I think all of us would have been confused. Um, you know, Jesus had planted a seed here, I believe, in the hearts of many people when he said this. And in the minds of all of those that were listening. Jesus had given a prophecy. Let's see the explanation of this explained in verses 21 through 22. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered... He had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So Jesus' words are explained, right? If you ever wonder what a, a passage of scripture means, the best commentary is always the scripture. Look before and after. That doesn't get it for you. Keep going chapter by chapter, book by book. Uh, remember here, too, the result of this was their faith was strengthened in Jesus and God's word. Such a huge, huge part of that. I wonder, as I read this, how many others were there. They heard that, right? All these religious leaders and all those people's present. I think three years later, every single one of them through the Holy Spirit remembered Jesus' words. I truly believe that. I don't, I don't know how many came to faith, but I guarantee that Holy Spirit brought that up at some point. Every person that heard that that day, I bet you anything. It just seems to be kind of how God works. So in closing, I go back. I say closing, but we've got a ways to go. I want to go back to my question, though. How do we celebrate what Jesus has done for us? So Jesus, we see through this story, he was very obedient to observe God's commands as given in Scripture. A great example for all of us to follow. Jesus spent time with God daily. We know this. He had a personal relationship, a prayer life. We do today, right? If we're going to give... We should be reading our Bibles today. We should be in prayer. And... We must be in fellowship, the local church. I'm very careful with my words there. The local church. I'm grieved 
by this. And I, I thought of this word carefully, but this is truly my heart when I say this. I am truly grieved that professing Christians ignore the command to remain in fellowship. It grieves me. Their sin is sin. I'm going to call it, it's sin. They have become so much more than I'm just staying home from church because I feel a certain way. It's much, much more than that now. I think when it started, I understand, we even closed our church for a while. It's so much bigger now. I'm going to use an example. And I think the Holy Spirit spoke to me this example, and this is a controversial example. And it's so interesting that all of you came on your first Sunday here, and you're going to hear this from me. So this has got to be the Lord, because here it is. Homosexuality is a sin. Let's start right there. Right? If you are a professing Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, homosexuality is a sin. So everyone agrees the Bible states this clearly. Now, years ago, for most of us, um, there's a lot of people that practice that lifestyle, practice homosexuality. But they would live this out. It was their private life. And I had even people I knew well, people that I even, I liked them. I was friends with them. But I knew they lived a life of sin. But I still loved them. But I, was a, I didn't agree with their lifestyle. But we were still friends. And they knew I didn't agree with it. And yeah, it was what it was. Um, it's not that way anymore, is it? It's not that way anymore. Bible-believing Christians like me would pray for these guys or women or whoever they were that they would repent one day and they'd know Jesus. And that was our heart for them. It was nothing more than that. They were living a life of sin, like many other things that we can live a life of sin. But something changed some years ago in our society, didn't it? Something changed drastically. We no longer can just disagree with the lifestyle they live, can we? We can't still be friends. I can be, but they don't want to be our friends anymore. The LGBTQ+, plus, I had to look that up, demands that we accept their sin as a good thing. It wasn't this way before. They demand that we endorse their sin now. They demand that we accept their sin. Or we are hateful racists who need to be counseled. It wasn't always this way. We used to be able to live coercively together and not agree to disagree. It's not that way anymore. So I'm glad you're sitting down because here's my next point. I said this as an example. I'm not preaching on that today. I've experienced this same hate, this same demands to accept and endorse sin from professing Christians daily here in Chiang Mai. They say, they tell me, if you love God and others, you will not meet for church. Quote. Because of fear of COVID. That's quote. Thing got seven likes on our Facebook page. And that's from different people in which seven likes majority everyone agreed so i asked earlier when is it time to stand for biblical truths when is it time to follow jesus's example he shows us in these passages to follow jesus as he did how do we celebrate again what jesus has done for us goes back to my question we do this by honoring and celebrating jesus in corporate worship by being obedient by trusting him By being steadfast ourselves to offer ourselves daily as a living sacrifice? I want us all to turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, 
you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. Each of us need to examine our own lives. As together, we are the church where God resides. We are the temple of God. Now, this title of the message, we've probably been seeing on the screen the whole time, was Righteous Anger. I haven't mentioned it to this point. Jesus expressed this towards sin in the house of God in this story. He expressed righteous anger towards sin in the house of God. We need to have that same attitude that Jesus has towards sin in our own lives. Righteous anger. Are we capable of righteous anger? I can't answer that. I've thought about it. I asked my old pastor. He taught a sermon on it. Are we really capable of righteous anger? I I, I don't know how to answer that. But I know his heart, Jesus' heart. There was sin in the house of God, and he cast it out. And he cast it out in a very dramatic fashion. He physically removed it from there and rebuked it. We must cast out all sin from the temple of God, the church, and ourselves. It's a process. I mean, this is a process we walk through as we walk as Christians, right? We examine ourselves daily. We offer ourselves a living sacrifice. When the Holy Spirit reveals something in our life, we repent of it. We turn from it. We cast that sin out, and we turn to God. It's a process. But not trusting God and living in fear is sin. So I have one verse to close with. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, the context of this is talking to some sexual sin, but I do believe the context is always talking to any sin in our life. We need to cast that sin out. If we want to celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done, it starts by casting that sin out, by being obedient to God, to being in fellowship. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this difficult message. I do believe, Lord, it was, uh, I questioned it so often as I studied and wrote on it, and I even referred to other Christian brothers. It's like, look at this. Is this, is this okay? And Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that you would just open our hearts to receive this message for what it is. It's love, Lord. It's love for you, Jesus Christ, and what you've done for each one of us, Lord, and the freedom that you've given each one of us from our sins, Lord, and Lord, that you've called us to come together, Lord, as your children to worship, to be in fellowship, to lift one another up, to equip each other, Lord, to go outside of these doors and share that we don't have to live in fear. We can have hope, and that, Lord, that you love each and every other, each and every person out there, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that nobody would mistake anything I said for anything but love for the lost. And, Lord, I pray, Lord, that here in this church body, in my life individually, and anyone else here attending, Lord, if there is anything that is displeasing to you in our lives, Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would reveal that to us, Lord. And we'd follow Jesus' example, and we'd do whatever it took to remove, to cast out that sin out of our lives far, far away and walk the other direction from it, Lord. And if people get upset when it happens, so be it, Lord. I choose to follow you. Lord, I pray for all the churches in Chiang Mai. 
There's no restrictions, Lord. There's no excuses. They come up with all these reasons. There is none, not even legally. I don't care if there was, but there isn't even. Open their doors, Lord. Speak to the pastors. I don't care what tree. Open their doors, Lord, and fill that place with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and let just your spirit just speak to these people, Lord, and remove that spirit of fear from this place, Lord. Lord, I praise you and I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come before you today, Lord. Please watch over all of us, Lord, and bless the rest of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.